Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective on a beautiful evening in beautiful New London, Connecticut. So I would normally ask you what you're going to be ranting about, but this is Rantapalooza, our Woo! annual our annual event that we have at the end of every season. Um, well, biannual biannual event because annual. our seasons are half a year, although they used to be like just indeterminate amounts of time, and then we just didn't end too. But uh, it's it's very exciting that we're doing Rantapalooza. We are going to start R.I.V. for the Bill Bradley Collective with our first rant, our friend Andrew. Yeah, so we're going to start here with a story that, in my mind, is almost, you know, 40, 50 years in the making. Been waiting for a shoe like this to drop in this fucking pitiful man's life for that long. Um, and that's one Vincent K. McMahon, the, I guess now... Interimly former CEO of World Wrestling Entertainment, chairman of the board, the uh, majority shareholder in the company. Look, it's this is very sports adjacent because this story reflects a lot of the problems we've talked about in front offices in professional sports teams. Oh, the difference between this and the Washington football team scandal is like it's the same fucking thing. It's very, it's very similar. Right. Yeah. And, and, and with the same level of surprise. Well... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's been happening. <laughs> and that's, and we're, and yeah, that's where I'm going here. Um, like I said, it's four decades in, in the making. It's since McMahon came onto the scene in the public eye in the mid 80s. So this week, the Wall Street Journal publishes kind of this bombshell story that um, McMahon, as well as his head of talent relations, who's also a former wrestler, one John Laurinaitis, is uh, they're under investigation for a an alleged $3 million uh, hush pact with uh, former employees with which Laurinaitis and McMahon are alleged to have had uh, relations with. Any other CEO, any other company, this is how I've read it described. If this happened in any other publicly traded company where this came out, the guy's done. He's, he's gone, though. What's happened since the story broke, and really in the last like 24 hours here, it happened uh, today, as a matter of fact, that McMahon has stepped down as CEO, but he's going to appear on tonight's SmackDown that's their one of the flagship shows of WWE on Fox on on basic cable, and um, he's going to appear apparently in character. So you can see, you know, the the sympathy is just pouring out uh, about this. His daughter Stephanie, who was a member of the board or was a member of the board until very recently, uh, she departed under odd circumstances that nobody really knows what's really going on. Is going to now she's stepped back onto the board and now she's the interim CEO. And she's going to remain that until these, uh, this investigation is completed. It's being done by an out, uh, outside firm. Look, and hopefully soon, I would love to profile Vince McMahon because there's a lot of dalliances in sports, the XFL, among other things. Uh, his relationship with Trump, very prescient. This guy, this is a guy who destroys territorial wrestling in the 80s. He buys, he buys what's then WWF from his father, Vincent Jay McMahon, with a promise that you will not attempt to nationally expand this company. You will remain, this is a New York, Boston, this is a, a, a tri-state, New England territory, which in, the, in, that, in those days, that was the business. There was no national company. First thing he does is he, he poaches Hulk Hogan from min, the Minnesota-based AWA, American Wrestling Association. He gets the likes of Cindy Lauper and Mr. T and uh, other celebrities and Liber, fucking Liberace and Billy Martin has a WrestleMania in Madison Square Garden in 1985. 
It's an enormous financial windfall for the company. It does an amazing live gate, does amazing business nationally on closed circuit television. He starts uh, poaching all of the top stars from all of the regional promotions across the country, starts touring the WWF nationally, and just bankrupts countless promoters, countless just local thriving companies. And he just leaves them all in, in just a, you know, in non-existence. He, he, he goes national. He almost goes broke in the mid-90s. He's almost toast. The wrestling business is in severe decline, coming off the heels as well of his much ballyhooed at the time steroid trial where the federal government came after him and he somehow escaped despite, I think, I, I th- the guy's guilty. He was distributing steroids. I think the prosecutors that handled the case kind of fumbled it. This is a topic for a different time. Uh, but how does, how does he get back? How does he, you know, become the Vince McMahon that we know today as this, this kind of billionaire? In the late 90s, he decides to just appeal to the, at the time, the Jerry Springer, the South Park, the kind of just, and I th- I mean, South Park is something that's consciously, self-consciously tasteless, but the WWE, WF at the time, becomes just this very tasteless, very, we're going to appeal to the worst aspects of culture, misogyny, homophobia, we're going to appeal to horny teenage boys, and um, what does he do? company goes public in 99. They're never more successful than they are in 98, 99, 2000. Uh, he goes from the verge of bankruptcy in 96 to, um, you know, a fucking, they're talking to him on CNBC, uh, you know, by the early 2000s and by, by appealing to just the worst aspects of like our culture. Um, and it's sad. Real quick, if you want an idea of the culture in WWE now, even in, and this this story comes from the early 2010s. This is not ancient history here. Former uh, female star in the company, AJ Lee, married to uh, CM Punk, who was a big star in WWE years ago. He's a big star in rival company All Elite Wrestling. She has an excerpt in her in a biography she wrote a few years ago, in which she says, um, "This is what Mrs. Well, I guess Mrs. Brooks, because CM Punk's name is." Uh, Philip Brooks, this is what Mrs. Brooks, the known on TV as A.J. Lee, had to say in her book about an exchange she had with the talent relations at the time. And again, this is like circa 2011, 2012. Somebody in talent relations says, and I quote from the book, Look, we know you can wrestle, and not many women can. We appreciate that. We just want you to understand that it's important to be the full package. Right now, you're the best wrestler in the competition. Our female fans want to dress like you. Our male fans want to hang out and play video games with you but no one wants to have sex with you. Do you see how that's a problem for us? I don't know how they do things in FCW, which was Florida Championship Wrestling, which was their developmental uh, training ground at the time. But here, we have a standard our women are proud to stand up to. And that right there is why this comes as no shock to me. McMahon made his fortune, really, on serial misogyny. And... and I, the fact that he's going to be on national TV tonight in character, the fact that he has not been, that the board has not dismissed him kind of altogether at this point, or has at least made any inkling that they're moving in that direction. The rest of the professional wrestling industry, WWE namely, is just one fucked up amoral world. It's, they will do their best ratings tonight than they've done in And that's the goal, years. is to pop a number with McMahon. They, they will do their best numbers tonight because now it's a story and they know that and they're going to use this and it says nothing about protecting the woman who was 
you know, it's consensual, but if power dynamics, there is a certain level of abuse. This also goes back to the 80s when Vince McMahon was accused of rape by a female referee. Uh, you know, that was a case that he was accused of. You know, this is the same company that used to have bra and panties matches, and, you know, Vince McMahon made uh, a female wrestler get on the ground and bark like a dog. You know, this is... WWE is the reason why Linda McMahon, thank God, is not our U.S. <laughs> senator right up. now. Yeah. And I'll stand by my, my Washington football team or the commanders comparison because, like uh, WWE, the Red the Washington football team has had these stories around forever. Like the WWE uh, and Vince McMahon, Snyder gets a suspension from the NFL, which allows him to still go to games and still hang out with the team and it's a suspension in name only. He can't draw a salary, but because it's his team, that just means it goes into the profits. It doesn't mean anything. Um, and, you know, but this, there is nothing surprising about this story. Of course this is what happened. Quickly, to conclude, I think for me the monkey in the room is um, Nick Khan. As, as a Hollywood guy who came in recently in the last couple of years, he negotiated WWE's deals with NBC Universal and Fox. That's where all their money comes from. It's not coming from... Uh, touring, it's it's coming from tele- big television money. Nick Khan is an outside an outsider, has no real connection to the wrestling business. He came in, made these huge deals for them, and there's a lot of belief that he leaked this thing, and that this is kind of a something of a hostile takeover, kind of a coup. And what he's going to do if he can get his hands on the company is hire is, is sell off, is sell hire, this motherfucker. Oh, I thought and, he's going to hire Urban Meyer to run it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, who knows? All right, so for our second round, is something I wanted to talk about uh, a couple months ago when it started, but thank God it keeps getting worse, uh, which is the crypto crash. And also, I'll touch briefly on the NFT crash. I don't really understand NFTs. It's a picture you can own on the internet for millions of dollars that anyone can screenshot and then say they own. And there's not like Seth Green. Seth Green just had uh, like four of his NFTs stolen and he was developing a show, and now he can't develop the show anymore, and it's just hilarious to me. Dead or alive, Seth Green. He's still alive. <laughs> He's still kicking. But crypto reached the high. Bitcoin, in particular, reached the high in last year, I believe it was around November, October, of $68,000, roughly what it would cost him uh, by one Bitcoin. This is a coin that used to be worth, you know, $5. So if somebody came in... Bought a thousand shares of five dollars. It's now worth sixty-eight thousand. They're now multi-multi-millionaires, and a lot of people became multi-multi-millionaires just by holding on to it. And a lot of people have also become completely broke and lost everything because of this. Because when it hit sixty-eight thousand, a lot of people started buying in, thinking, "Oh, this is a real." competitor to the U.S. dollar. This is a real competitor to quote-unquote fiat currency. You know, this unregulated market is going to be what saves us from the takeover of the Fed, things like that. And they got in, and now it has dropped uh, about 75% of its value. Uh, It is currently trading at $20,000. And if you go to the Reddit site where they talk about crypto a lot called Wall Street Bets, uh, about every 10th post, 12th post, uh, is the suicide hotline. Uh, because people are literally posting, I've lost everything, I'm losing my house, my wife left me, you know, what do I do? 
And it goes to show you when these Ponzi schemes, which is, this is basically a Ponzi scheme. No one understands how it goes up in value. They only understand how it goes down in value. It's not based on anything. It's just a Ponzi scheme where the only way you can go up in value is if you get your friends to also invest in Bitcoin so that they continue to go up and up. But eventually people sell. And when it sells is when it drops. And it's run by, like, there are certain coins that are run by only a few really, really rich people that hold, like, 80% of it. So when one of them sells, the price plummets. And it just shows that, like, this kind of scam, like, is not going to be uncommon as people get less trustful of our government. Like, as people have more distrust in our government, as our government, the actions of our government become further separated from the needs of the people, then of course they're going to look for another out, a get-rich-quick scheme. And this is all this is, and people have suffered real economic harm because of this. And this reminds me of, like, when the tech bubble or when Enron burst in the early 2000s, or the Beanie Babies bubble burst, where it's like these things are these are just artificially inflated, and eventually they pop. Right. And, and I really, really appreciate it, because I haven't heard that take before, that the, the distrust that conspiracy theories have really moved into a large segment of our population. The distrust in institutions is at an all-time high. Bitcoin, I mean, cryptocurrency is one of those things that... My guess would be 95% of all people who, not at the top levels, but who, who put in, you know, who scrounged around, you know, who borrowed from their 401k so they could buy currencies are white guys between like 28 and, and 50. Like I, I, I play wow. poker with a bunch of these guys who were just always talking to me about Bitcoin and then, you know, cryptocurrency, got to get in and got to, but they couldn't explain to me how, like why or how it made money. And I thought, yeah, no, I'll just not do that. Uh, today, Babel Incorporated, which is a uh, which was a crypto company that went public, in they thought it was like it, it, they had originally assessed it worth eighty two billion uh, eighty two million dollars. It ended up being valued at the end of the first day at two billion dollars, and is now worth nothing because as people tried to pull it out, pull money out. They're saying we cannot do that. Yeah, they, and this is an unregulated industry, so that you don't have FDC. I mean, it's it's the run on the banks at um, at the end of um, it's a wonderful life, except they don't have a dollar left over at the end. Yeah, an important thing I forgot to mention is a lot of these places like Coinbase, where are hold platforms that trade crypto exclusively. They have frozen withdrawals because they simply don't have the capital to pay these people out anymore. And they've now frozen anyone from being able to take their money out. So people are just sitting there watching their wealth go away. And, th- and, and this is a pro LeBron James podcast. I was a little bit upset when he, he, he started recording commercials. I was not upset when Brady did it because that was, that was like waiting for the sun to rise. But this is real people are losing everything on this, this financial plan that no one could ever explain to you. Like, it just couldn't be explained. And and, and you're right, the edit, what is it, NFT? NFTs. And, uh, yeah. That, like, I'm sure it makes sense to somebody, it ain't me. Uh, somebody I grew up with that was a really good friend at a young age who, just over time, we've grown apart. We still occasionally get in touch with each other. 
Uh, he's based now in San Francisco, and he works for Coinbase. And um, recently, Coinbase, uh, they cut 1,100 jobs. They laid yeah. off 1,100 people. 18% of their workforce. Like, it's not only it's not only just the people that have, have... And again, very... If you're dumping, like, all of your personal, like, liquidity into this speculative thing, whatever it is, I just don't have much sympathy for you. But the people that, like, take jobs at these companies, like, I, I do have some sympathy for them. I, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's... Yeah, it's it's a, it's rough, but it's for some it's it's deserved. I don't know. So this is a story that takes place in Louisiana, and it is a harbinger of things to come. This has been our uh, our uh, season of of talking about women, and and I've tried to have my rants based on that, and so this is the first one. Uh, this is the well, probably the last one now. Krista Abelseth, and I I might be botching your last name, but I think that's what it was. 16 years ago, was 16 years old, and she um, was at a at a bar in the city of Hammond, and a man by the name of John Barnes, who was in 30, I, I've also seen him listed at 32, this is 2005, so 17 years ago, um, offered to give her a ride home. But he doesn't bring her home, he brings her back to his place, and according to Christab, Ab- Abelseth, rapes her on the couch. She becomes pregnant, and she has the baby. Um, she had been have she had had a boyfriend uh, who broke up with her when she got pregnant because he knew it wasn't his. Uh, but she people thought it was his, and she let him think that. Ten years later, this man realizes, "Oh, I might have a child," John Barnes, and reaches out to her because he would like custody. Now, let's be clear. This cannot be, under Louisiana law, consensual sex. She was 16 years old. The age of consent in Louisiana is 17. This is non-consensual sex. She realizes, okay, I, I need to do something. She goes to a, a trauma a counselor. Trauma counselor says, you can still file for you could still put in a rape charge because it's it, the, the clock starts on the statute of limitations when you turn 18 and you didn't turn 18 for two years. So you have plenty of time. She does. She reports the rape. They have never assigned a detective to this case. They have never conducted an investigation on this case. If we think that that's unusual, statistics show that in, um, for every 1,000 rapes, first of all, three out of four rapes are not reported, they believe. For every 1,000 instances of rape, only 13% are referred to prosecutors. That's 0.13. In only seven cases, 0.07% lead to a felony conviction. Mr. Barnes takes her to court because he wants custody and he wants child support. And the judge, citing the fact that he had just bought the daughter a cell phone, gives him full custody and orders child support from the mother. This man had threatened multiple, said, uh, Krista says, quote, 
He's threatened me multiple times saying he has connections in the justice system, so I better be careful. And he can take her away from me anytime he wants to. I didn't believe him until it happens. Well, one of those reasons it happens is that his business, which is Gumbo, G-O-U-M-B-A-U-X, remember it's Louisiana, digital branding uh, is uh, has one of, as one of their clients, that police department. Now, this is a horrifying story. But before you think it's a one-off, remember that when, not if, when this corrupt and Jerry and jiggered uh, Supreme Court eliminates Roe versus Wade, an abortion after a rape will not be an option. And we are going to be hearing stories of like this. They won't, we won't be hearing about stories like this because it will become accepted as part of what life in America is. Yeah, I remember um, when Trump got elected, uh, Laura put up a post-it in her office that just said, this is not normal, to remind her that like what we're seeing should never become normal because so often, think about the way mass shootings are covered now. We're just, they're just, oh, there was, a, there was a mass shooting today in an Alabama church. It was just covered as if, oh, this guy went in there and... Yeah, committed three murders and was taken down, and that's just another day in America. Ken Paxton said we have to accept this as part as part of our individual. We have to accept mass shootings if we're going to have individual liberty. Yeah, and this is just this is not normal. Like we cannot let this become normal. Like many of our listeners, including all of us, live in New England, and in New England, we'll be fine. All the states here have codified Roe v. Wade into their legal system. We'll be fine. But for millions of other women in this country, it's not going to be fine. And then it becomes like, are you willing to break the law to help a woman in Louisiana? Like, are you willing to order from a Connecticut company abortion pills and mail them to a woman in Louisiana so that she can exercise her rights as a human in this country, are you willing to protest outside judges' houses when they outside judges' houses? Not no more. This out the court. No, go go to their fucking house. Except the uh, with Democratic approval, the house is the house just um, uh, required police protection for those people. Good, even, even though even though the abortion workers don't get fine. That. Go there anyway. Yep. Fuck them. You, you said those words, individual liberty, and it's almost like the individual liberty of a man in that part of the country to, it's, it's, yeah, well, it's my liberty to force myself onto this woman, to impregnate this woman, to right. sexually, to rape, assault this woman. Um, but we can't, it, it's, it's, eh, and by the way, sorry, the, it's, just, it's just fucking horrifying. And, and when the, yeah. and when the, the Atlantic asks for the, this is an Atlantic uh, story, when the Atlantic asked for the court records, they were sealed by the judge. He's enabled, totally enabled by... The, yep. Okay, that's something more trivial and a little lighter. Into um, round two. The round two, here. This will, be, this will be a little quicker, Brandon, don't worry. Um, <laughs> so, so I recently started following uh, a guy, Randy Wilkins, on Twitter. Randy Wilkins is a filmmaker, and Randy Wilkins uh, just finished, just debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival, the first part of his soon-to-be-debuted ESPN documentary on The Captain... One, Derek Sanderson Jeter. 
Ah, for fuck's sake. We can litigate this at the bar later, but that's, this is not the point. But um, anyway, uh, Wilkins had a tweet the other night in response to Chud. One Brandon Tierney. Brandon Tierney is the midday host on WFN in New York with former great running back Tiki Barber. The two have been a radio pair for many years. They were a national show on CBS Sports Radio. They were simulcast on the CBS Sports Network. Uh, I believe they got kind of downgraded now that they just kind of have this midday show on FAN 10 to 2. And Tierney was all up in arms. And Wilkins was very critical of this, what Tierney was up in arms about. What he was critical of was the other night, just this week, there was a Tampa Bay Rays-New York Yankees game. And there was a weird delay where manager Aaron Boone of the Yankees is trying to make a pitching change. And the Rays don't think he can make the pitching change because it, it was just weird, just a dumb... The, the, one of the things that makes baseball like kind of unwatchable. It was this was going on. There was a delay in action for just no fucking reason. And during this delay, Rays outfielder uh, Randy Arena wa- went over to the Yankee dugout and chatted f- during the duration of this delay with Yankee pitcher Nestor Cortez. They just had a chat, a friendly chat during this delay where nothing's going on. They're just having a chat at the top of the dugout. No problem. Nothing to see here. But what does Brandon Tierney? talk radio guy have to say about this. Well, he's up in arms. The Rays are the Yankees' rival. You, the you know, Rays pitchers have thrown at Yankee hitters. And Randy Rays Arena in 2020, in the playoffs, he killed the Yankees in that LDS. And wh- what are you doing? Sleeping with the enemy. Talking to the enemy. This is There's no place for this. This would never have happened in a previous generation. It'd be one thing if it was some non-rival, but the Rays are your rival. And you can't, you can't, you can't do that. The Rays are the Yankees' rival? I mean, I guess they've become one since the Rays have been good for like 10 years, but that's kind of besides the point. It's not the, yeah, obviously, the, Boston. Yeah, he but. wasn't talking to a Red Sox. He wasn't. But besides the point, it's like these are two guys. They play baseball for a living. There are very few Cubans in baseball. Arazarena and Cortez are two of them. Uh, Arazarena homered off, homered off Cortez in this game. What is the fucking uproar? What is and, and Tierney's not alone. These are the guys that call FAN. These are these are the guys, the chuds on fucking Twitter, that get up in arms about. And it's the same. It's almost like Charles Barkley on Inside the NBA talking about how these guys now. Oh, how can they be friends? But your best fucking friend back in the day was Michael Jordan. Like it's old school, new school. These guys, they're professional athletes. They're not. They're not. You know robots programmed to destroy and kill the guy wearing the other uniform. It's a delay in the game. Outfielders talking to an opposing pitcher. They're having a chat. What is the outrage? What what exactly is the problem besides this bullshit narrative that, I don't know, this old school sense of, the, you know, this uniform versus this uniform, this tribalism. It's just so fucking dumb. All right, let's, so dumb. let's be clear here. The Tampa Bay Rays are not the New York Yankees rival. A rival. Which they've they become. Are, there's been, acri- they, and I'm not defending it. You're, they, you're making me defend this, but they have. Be, there's, they have an acrimonious thing for the last ten. They're years. rivals in the yeah. way the Jets and Dolphins are rivals. Jet, where it's like, yeah, I guess you Jet, play in the same division. I mean, you play in the same division, so you play each other more frequently. Jets so and I Dolphins guess, rivals, man. <laughs> Come on, not, they're not Jets. They're Patriots not, exactly what I've. Yeah, the Jets exactly. and Dolphins in the '80s and '90s that was a rivalry. Like, yeah, but they're not now. It's like, oh, both teams are bad. Like, whatever. Like the Yankees are good, the Rays are good. Mediocre. They're, no, the Rays, the Rays are they're good. fine. They've been in the they made the playoffs like every year for the last. Like, yeah. Anyway, but it's just it's one of those things of like, 
It's a boomer complaint. That, that, thank you. That's exactly that's what and, I'll say. And it, 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 it's everything, you know, the intersection of sports and politics is tribalism. And the idea that you can't, un, you're, you can't be willing to understand the other side's point of view because that's weakness is that that's you're right and uh, and it's just it, that never made any sense to me like i i just got blasted by this group because uh somebody i'm representing because i was having a conversation with the attorney on the other side like we've we've had some issues at the table but like he's got a job i've got a job okay you know it's not personal it's just as as abe vagoda said tell michael it's not personal it's just business uh, so for my next rant, I'm going to go one that probably would have been my rant uh, this week uh, if we were running a normal episode, which is the recall election of San Francisco District Attorney uh, Chesa Boudouin. 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 I'm going to go. We're going to go with that as his last name. It could be Boudouin. Could be Boudouin. We're going to go with Boudouin. Uh, it makes him sound fancier. Uh, he was a progressive DA who eliminated cash bail. Which is a scam. Cash bail is a scam. Uh, it just keeps people in jail for longer, um, for no real reason. It, it keeps black people in jail. Keeps black people. Let's, in jail. let's be fair. Yeah, and 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 if and if you're able to afford it, get it keeps you in debt. Um, after that, he was a progressive uh, DA who put forward a lot of reforms, was prosecuting less people, and. There was a recall election because California has this strange law where if you just get enough signatures, you can recall elected officials uh, ahead of their normal election process. And they recalled him based on the fact that, well, the crime rate is too high. Now, first of all, the crime rate in San Francisco uh, is not any higher or lower than it is anywhere else in this country. That is uh, similar demographics, similar population numbers. In fact, they're lower than most other Republican-led DA cities or Republican-led jurisdictions. So crime hadn't really gone down, but people felt like crime had gone up. And it reminds me of what Newt Gingrich said in 2016 about crime as well when he was giving an interview after the RNC convention. He said, you have your statistics, but the American people feel differently, and I'm going to go with the way the American people feel. The American people are wrong sometimes. Like, just because you feel a certain, you know, and this also comes from the same group of people that are like the fuck your feelings crowd, the Ben Shapiro's that are like, your feelings don't matter, except when it comes to crime and being afraid of minorities. Then it matters And greatly. trans people. And trans people. Then it matters a lot. Um, But these people have recalled a very good DA who was pushing forward real progressive reforms and doing it in a way where crime did not see an appreciable spike out that was different than anywhere else in this country and was lower than where Republican DAs are in charge. And he was recalled overwhelmingly. And it just reminds me that in America, no matter how good the policy is, the way those people feel at the VFW Hall matter a hell of a lot more because they vote and we don't. Right. And, and and that's the key point. He was over he was recalled overwhelmingly by a vote that got I think seven percent of all voters out 
because it's in the middle of it's in the, it's in June. It was in May or June or something, and it was June. June. Uh, um, the coverage of this. Now, I will say up front, I gave money to Chase Boudin, uh in his campaign because my fiance, in the first time she ever did needlepoint, made a a uh, made a little sign about him that hangs up in her home. And so I see it every day, and, and he is he's a remarkable man and a remarkable story. The coverage of this, especially by the New York Times, which is no longer the paper of record, the Washington Post is paper of record, the New, York, the New York Times is insufferable. They kept talking about the Democratic overreach, blah, 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 blah. At the exact same time, the exact same week, Philadelphia who has their own Chase Boudon, uh, as a, a uh, overwhelmingly beat in a primary, which is the only election that matters in Philadelphia, a more conservative person that said you've gone too far. Over, uh, pounded them. This is not a national movement. This is that San Francisco Democratic Town Committee didn't get people out. And part of that was because he's not one of them. He was an outsider that came in and shook, you know, shook them, and, and unfortunately, you know, in the city of Nancy Pelosi and in the party of Nancy Pelosi, going after the establishment is just not something you can do. Zach, I liked how you framed the kind of kind of the the opposition between statistics and reality versus like just perception and opinion. And the idea of and it's a ta- it's a Republican talking point that I keep hearing about about like violent crime murder rate in Chicago something that like statistically is like way down murders in Chicago and in other major cities yet Republicans want to just be like well it's it's out of control it's mur- gun violence in in, in, the, in Chicago namely and maybe it's because the mayor's Lori Lightfoot and they, they don't they don't like that for obvious reasons and if you can't get people to trust data in statistics then we've lost the we've lost well we've how lost. many how many of these I, I people, how many of these people have watched fox news because fox that's news the narrative that fox news has changed everything the actual yeah. numbers say different so i'm going to talk about a recent interview with john skipper a former head of espn who uh lost his job primarily due to a due to a drug addiction, which I am not passing judgment on whatsoever. Uh, Skipper, I guess, is involved. He's involved in zone, right? Yes, he is. And uh, which I subscribe to and watch every fight on. So I'm not, you know, every fight they have. So I'm not, I'm not anti-John Skipper. But he was talking about uh, the recent $9 million a year contract signed by Adam Schefter at ESPN. And they asked him if it was worth it. Given that he has had some, what were called in the interview with Dan Lebetard, quote, high-profile gaffes. And he said, absolutely. He said, Schefter has nine, or, 9 to 10 million Twitter followers. That's valuable. What's valuable to ESPN, question mark, sports, rights, and news. And that's their business. All right. Let's talk a little bit about. Is that what Skipper said in terms yes. of, like, rationalize? Okay. Yes. I just want to make sure right. I heard it right. Let's talk about some of the high-profile gaffes that he's had recently. In October, he had to apologize because he had said 
a full story to former Washington uh, Commanders GM Bruce Allen, who is the other party in all the John Gruden emails and part of the Washington football team issue that we've discussed. He presided over all that uh, and called him Mr. Editor. And uh, Schefter said, fair questions are being asked about my reporting approach to an NFL lockout story from 10 years ago, which he points out. Just to clarify, it's common practice to verify facts of a story with sources before you publish it in order to be as accurate as possible. In this case, I took the rare step of sending the full story in advance because of the complex nature of the collective bargaining talks. He doesn't mention that he talked about it to him while his tongue was halfway up his ass because it is brutal. I mean, he should have been fired for that. In November, he had been accused of journalistic malpractice because the attorney of of, uh, the woman, Dalvin Cook, running back for the uh, Minnesota Vikings, was accused of domestic violence and extortion by his partner a former partner, obviously, Schefter tweeted out the matter and only quoted Cook. He never bothered to reach out to the woman. And Schefter said, in a case like this, if it, it it's, it's important to reach out to all sides for information and comment. When I got the information the other night, I didn't do that. I could have done a better job reaching out to the other people. No, actually, you could have done anything. You could have just called her. You could have not sent out the tweet. And recently when when Deshaun Watson signed his contract, he said, this is why Deshaun Watson, from the beginning, welcomed the police investigation. He felt he knew the truth would come out. And today, a grand jury did not charge him with any criminal complaints. Later, he apologized because uh, of, for the wording. This, first of all, this guy doesn't do reporting. He takes dictation. Secondly, is it actually worth $9 million to get tweets sent to you every nine minutes about, well, here are the new Saints helmets. Aren't they cool looking? And get the draft picks four seconds before they're actually announced by the NFL. Like, I don't understand the value of Adam Schefter at all. But these are not mistakes. He is a corporate lackey. And ESPN is part, and it's not ESPN that's a corporation. It's the NFL. And he has access because he never does anything. He, he is the Chuck Todd of sports. He's a Mab, Maggie Haberstrom of sports. Haberman of Haberman. sports. Um, it, it, wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a Bill Bradley collective if I didn't screw up a name. And $9 million, when these guys are laying off Dan Raphael, who's probably the best boxing writer there is, um, and Mark Stein, who is every bit as good as Woj. I mean, Mark Stein's fantastic. And all these people who, who are just gone now. Sarah Sp- uh, um, not Sarah Spade. Katie, Sarah Spade. Kate, Sarah Spain, Katie Nolan. Katie Nolan. Others, Michelle Beadle. They're all gone. But he remains because he just, he helps ESPN be the lapdogs of the NFL. He's an absolute disgrace and an embarrassment to the to your girl Mina Mina Kimes, to Diana Rossini, to the countless and there are there are many women that for ESPN.com cover uh, NFL beats team beats and every other woman in actual serious journalist 
male, female that works at ESPN. Because what Schefter is, he's not a journalist. He's not a writer. What he's paid for, he's paid for his fucking Rolodex, and he's paid basically to do paid endorsements for the National Football League. That's what he's paid to do. Um, the fact that the NFL is still in bed with him, I'm sorry, ESPN and the NFL, the NFL will always be in bed with him no matter where he goes next. Um, is a disgrace. But again, they pay for the Rolodex. They pay for the con- uh, the con- the contacts. You're telling me that like Peter King, who has probably the same Rolodex, but some a little bit of integrity, can actually write and can actually has a sense of like right and wrong. Schefter is to, to to your point, just a total a crony, a lackey, and an embarrassment to, in my mind to and it, and it gets wor- it gets worse year over year with him. It's you'd think at some point after these countless gaffes, hey, I got to be a little more uh, litigious to myself. No, he's a disgrace. ESPN really has to decide, are they a journalistic enterprise or are they an entertainment enterprise? Because if they're a journalistic enterprise, how do you excuse Adam Schefter? If you're an entertainment enterprise, okay, yeah, you've got this guy who's basically a PR lackey for the NFL on your payroll. I guess he brings views to the table. Um, It just... ESPN is so fucked. And... I don't even know. think they know how to unfuck themselves. Morally compromised, I would say. Yeah. That's oh, to me. Round well, three. We're going we're gonna to stay on football because it's not a – this is one for me and, me and Zach here. Um, we're going to check in with the Jets here. Mandatory OTAs. Uh, we're fast approaching training camp. And I just had some real – one hard takeaway from kind of the news cycle of the last couple of weeks from, from these Jets organized team activities. The team, the coaches, the front office, they are very pleased with Zach quarterback Zach Wilson, and you know he put on some weight. He he he's in great shape, looks the part. He's he's put in the work, and uh, you know he seems. Th- th- they've been very outspoken, Sala in the front office, about how pleased they are with him now. Five months after the completion of last season, very pleased. One of the big surprises. That's six months after his actual last completion. That's true. <laughs> okay. All right. Another guy, I was shocked to hear this, that one Denzel Mims showed up in shape. Best shape of his life. Denzel Mims was a second-round pick, receiver that of the previous administration that quickly fell out of favor with this administration. And Salah, effusive in his praise of Denzel Mims, showed up in great shape. Like, he's going to have to work his balls off on the field to get up the depth chart, but he's done all of the right things up to now. Like, hey... He wants to be here. He's in shape. Let's let's give it a go. Let's see, let's see if we can like do a reclamation project with this guy who's still fucking twenty four years old. Why can't we make Denzel Mims work? In the in the front office and the coaches seem very pleased. And I'm very excited to hear that. Another potential weapon for for Zachy. The thing that gave me some pause is so Makai Becton, the prize, the first round pick, left tackle from a couple of years ago, um, who last year battled lower body issues, battled some weight issues. These guys were very effusive in their praise for Wilson and for Mims. And for Becton, the praise was like, he's here. He didn't participate in drills or an actual like scrimmage, like 7-on-7, seven 11-on-11. Seven, 11 11, but he was there, and he's working. His, his, his leg is structurally fine. His health is good. The weight is an issue. If he, if Makai Becton showed up, in like really good shape, the kind of shape that Zach and I want him to show up in, we would have heard it. 
Because we heard it about Wilson. We heard it about Mims, who was persona non grata just a few months ago. But with Becton, it's like he's healthy. Like his leg's fine. The injury has he's healed. He's good. But it's like his, the fuck, his fucking weight. I remember draft talking to you, Zach, draft day. And I think I, I was very open. I'm like, I would not be surprised if they go offensive line here because they don't trust Becton. It was said uh, off the record that Jets doctor, uh, Jets nutritionist trainers personnel were asked, um, what's Makai Becton walking around at right now? And they said he's north of 400 pounds. Like we're, our goal as the team physicians, doctors, trainers, our goal is to get him under 400 pounds. The Jets have invested so much skill positionally. And last year on the line with Elijah Vera Tucker, because we have these visions of Vera Tucker and Becton being those guys that are going to protect Zach Wilson. And so much of this year, considering all the talent at receiver, at running back, all over offensively, that we're going to put Zach Wilson in the best place to succeed. Well, the, the, the wild card, the guy with the most impact in my mind on the future, the recent future of Zach Wilson and Zach Wilson's development, which is also Jets' success, Jets' fortune, is Makai Becton. And the fact that, okay, I'm glad Becton's there. I'm glad he seems to be healthy from a just physical standpoint. Like he can, the knee's fine. You know, his lower body's fine. There's no, it's, that's healed. But he just, I am so nervous that this guy is, I don't know. I, I don't know if he's battling personal shit. I mean, hey, wait, and that's, that's, that's such a, that's across the bear, you know. But there's so much invested, I think, in Wilson and in Wilson's, his first, the, the first line of defense, the first piece to make Wilson great, to make the Jets great again, is the full health and Makai Becton walking around at, you know, 330 and not uh, 400 pounds. And I just, I was not encouraged by the message I got from Jets staff, Jets personnel about Becton this week. Yeah, I'm nervous. I, I mean, from another perspective, um, you know, I love that guy football players. Uh just keep the quarterback upright, man. Just and I'm keep, not sure you can do it at that. If weight. he can play 17 games, 18 games, then that's all I care about. If you're 400 pounds, you can play 18 games. Be 400 pounds, play 18 games. No one's ever played 18 games, 17 <laughs> games at 400 pounds. That's never happened in the history of football. But I, I, but I, I do think, like, I think we're getting to the point where we can call this draft pick a bust. And it's the. Well, no, it's not the previous administration. No, he's not. No, it's this. No, it's, it's, Joe, it's Joe Douglas. He was when he was on the field. He was really good. He was really good yeah. that rookie year. As he's far just, as rookie left tackles, he's, no, he's six really seven three fifty. Like he's amazing. At six seven three fifty, six seven four hundred, and uh, one of the things I, I just read today is that um, the Jets are getting an incredible amount. Of Vegasly shot, Vegas is shocked by the amount of Super Bowl bets they're getting, and um, you know just to make the Super Bowl, and uh, that ain't happening. It's, it's bad money. It's dumb yeah, money. That, yeah, that's, that's dead money. Excuse me. That's um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I've lost my share of bets, but I would not bet the Jets to win the Super Bowl. Uh, and Beck, Beckton is one of those reasons. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's. There's a whole bunch of, of offensive and defensive linemen who could not stop eating their way out of the NFL. He's a wild card. I, I hope the best, but I, I just don't know at this point. So to round up uh, my ranch for the day, I'm going to end it on a, on a little bit of a lighter topic, a uh, little bit of a f- 
more fun topic I want to get your opinion on. Oh, good, because I have another rape topic. I have to oh, which Jesus is uh, one Devin Allen, an undrafted rookie uh, for the Philadelphia Eagles who was signed uh, to a three-year contract a couple years ago. He's also a two-time Olympian. Uh, he played football for the University of Oregon. He uh, competed in the 2016-2020 Olympics. And uh, because uh, my wife, Laura, is a track coach, uh, I have to watch a lot of track and field events. And he, I got to watch uh, one of his hurdle events, 100-meter hurdles, where he beat the number one world champion uh, in the world about this. So my thing to you guys is, why don't more athletes do this? Like, this seems so fun. Like, this seems so cool that there's this NFL wide receiver who's also an Olympic hurdler. Like, why don't we see more of this? Because, like, Tyreek Hill is one of the fastest guys in the NFL. Go out there and run a 100-meter. Go run a 200-meter. Like, go. Let's have some. There should be more athletes in Olympic sports because it makes the Olympics more interesting. It makes track and field more interesting. And it makes the players that do this more interesting. So I would like to remind you of Willie Galt, who is a receiver for the um, for the Chicago Bears. Not a good one, but he was a receiver for the Chicago Bears. Got that ring in 85. Yeah, he did get an 85 ring. He used to... He used to stay. He was the ex receiver. He ran forty yards downfield. McMahon could not have hit him if he had a cutoff throw, but they had to cover him because you never know. And he played for. Uh, he was on the American bobsledding team in the Winter Olympics because they wanted a really fast guy who was also kind of light, and that was him. Yeah, I mean, part of this is just that we have become very specialized in what we do, but. These multi-sport athletes, like the greatest athlete Connecticut, the two greatest athletes Connecticut ever produced were probably by Bobby Valentine and Scott Burrell because they played multiple sports. Bruce Jenner has something to say about that. I'm sorry, not Bruce, but Caitlin. Oh, I, I forgot Caitlin was from Connecticut because okay, I yeah. walked out. But, but athlete. Yeah, right. But, I mean, they played multiple sports in high school at a very, very high level. So I agree with you. It would be fun. I, I don't know, like. Some of these guys, like, how far could J.J. Watt throw the hammer? I bet you right. super far. Right. Don't, don't <laughs> like, you kind of want to see this. It should be like this. There used to be a show when I was a kid called The Superstars, um, and it was athletes that, I mean, celebrities and athletes that competed in other sports, and it was fun. I mean, I remember Joe Frazier nearly drowning uh, in, in, the, uh, in the swimming race. Uh, because he didn't know how to swim, and he had never told anybody he didn't know how to swim. Because he figured he could, once he was in the water, he could figure it out. And it's like, that didn't happen. But yeah, it, it would be fun. And even if it's not at the Olympic level, it would be just cool to do it, and then maybe then go to the Olympic level. It would be awesome. We live in an era of just just really morally bankrupt modernization, though. So like the days of Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, like that's just not happening. Especially, like, And those are two, not track per se, but you know that baseball-football hybrid Unless the Eagles can like cash in on it, they're the front office. They, no, you're a football player. You are in our employ. You are going to do this. Um, Bo yeah, Jack, I, Bo Jackson ruined it for everybody because he got hurt. True, and yeah, that, and that's the thing. Or if you get, if you're, again, if you're this Eagles or whatever team, and you are there and you have a guaranteed, you know, whatever, you get hurt doing something else. Oof. 
let's just it's a nightmare. It's Wait, know, that that's why it's fo- not right. That's why it happens with football because they don't guarantee the contracts. They just mm. cut you. It's like, oh, yeah, you, know, you got hurt, so we're not playing you. So again, uh, I'm I'm, go- I'm going to go to a darker place. And this was the year of the the woman and or the season of the women for us. And and I want to just end with this. Morris Sheridan was one of the three radio play-by-play announcers in minor league baseball last year. And she was raped by a player named Duritzon Feliz. She reported the race. She then finished the season as the announcer because that's what she thought she should do. And the Hillcats, which is the name of the team, she just assumed she'd return to them next year. Her friends contacted her in February. This happened in August. Uh, Her friends contacted her in February of 2020 and told her, your job's online. You know, they've posted your job. She ended up calling a man by the name of Chris Jones, uh, who was an executive of the team. And Chris Jones said, oh, you know, we had this conversation. And she said, don't you think I would have been told? I would have remembered a conversation where you told me I wasn't coming. I was losing my job. And he said, well, we always do one years. You know, minor, my, in the minor leagues, we only, only have one year for each announcer team. We just, because we want to rotate it so everybody gets a chance. The problem with that argument is the previous person had done it for four years and the person before them had done it for two. Neither of them, both males, reported a rape against one of the players. It took them until March of the following year to notify, well, they notified the Guardians, then the Indians, and the Guardians reported to Major League Baseball in March that this had happened and they had taken discipline on the player, which is not true. They had actually fired, uh, they had actually cut the guy because he wasn't hitting in January. He had a very poor season. So... You know, he said there was no there was no malicious intent. It was just a mistake. The team never once reached out to her to see how she, you know, to see how she was doing. The Guardians never once reached out to her to see how she was doing. She has been unable to find a job as a baseball announcer since then. She seemingly has been blackballed. I'm going to end where I started. The life of women in this country has never been great. And it is getting progressively worse. And sports plays a large part in that. That sports, the NFL, the NBA, the WWE, the Major League Baseball, maybe, I might give the NBA a little bit of a pass. I don't, you don't hear it as much has been part of the process to denigrate women because they really don't give a shit if women cover the sport or not. Is this play this player, I mean, they're he's a in their in their, in their eyes, he's a commodity. He's a prize in the minor leagues. I just, I assume he's a prospect of some value of some worth. It's it's A ball, but well, but he's under general, contract. Yes, he is a, he, an A ball. Those he, are he is a combined. They do not. They do not view the two of them as employees. They view only one of them as having value, and the other is not. 
in part because of the position, but in my opinion, primarily because of gender. No question about it. To them, she is disposable. And and the most the saddest thing here is that she she had a violent crime inflicted upon her. And and what and what of it? Nothing. Just just no no ramification, no justice. Um, it's kind of a dour note, to, and this isn't like the tail. This is, I mean, this is like the tail end of our season, but it's the reality is the reality, and that shit is dour. It's bad, and for us, if we're not going to highlight it, if you're not going to highlight all the stories you did all season, then we're just not doing the state of women in sports any justice at all. Um, and as depressing it as depressing as it is to hear about it, we need to hear about it. This is a place we need to know that we need to know what the fuck's going on, and um, yeah, it's just it's just so bad. Yeah, so like I, I wish this was surprising. Um, but you heard the story, and the second you said he she was raped by a player, and they, oh, yeah, they probably sided with the player that they're paying forty thousand, five hundred thousand, whatever amount to play, versus paying you know a minor league announcer you're making like <laughs> barely above <laughs> minimum wage. Right. Yeah, you're, um, you're doing it to get out of it. But I think you know one thing that it's been shown this year that is especially like. If you're waiting for sports to be the great equalizer in gender, then you're going to have a long wait. So that's our Palooza, and we look forward to seeing you in two weeks at uh, The Social. I do want to end on a more positive note. Sue Bird announced her retirement yesterday in what was, for us yesterday, in what was a wonderful, in, in the most Sue Bird way possible, emotional and funny and sweet. She's the all-time assist leader in the WNBA. She's won four world championships. She's won five gold medals. She's won two national titles, I think two. 12-time All-Star. 12-time All-Star. It is, she is the most, she is the winningest athlete in the history of Seattle sports, even though they play short seasons. And um, to end on a more positive note, we as Connecticut residents, um, Want to wish a very happy retirement to the very wonderful Subert. So, she's actually playing tonight, fifty minutes away from here. She's playing the the Stormer, playing the Sun tonight. Yeah. Um, they'll be back though, so we should try to go. I think it's end of July, I believe they come back to Mohegan. We absolutely um, we should, should, we try, should to really try to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean it's it's her 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 press conference was it's everything that Subert is. It was delightful, and it made me. It made me really appreciate women's sports. And with that, we'll see you next week on the Bill Bradley Collective.